The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here reminding you that ads are not an inevitability. There is more than one way for you to help fund Lawfare. One way is for you to listen to the ads that we put on this podcast. Another way is for you to go to patreon.com slash lawfare. That's patreon.com slash lawfare. Support us directly and get an ad-free version of this podcast. You also get access to other cool stuff like our regular weekly Lawfare Live events. That's patreon.com slash lawfare. So a world in which a department of any sort can be given sustaining help by outside players is not necessarily a world that we ought to be comfortable with. And I think over time, it would be very useful to see even greater consolidation of, of local police departments. A, it's not exactly a trend, but it's something people have talked about for a while, but it's quite hard to do because local policing is thought to be a right of, of any township. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 11th, 2021. Daniel Richmond and Sarah Sayo are professors at Columbia Law School. They are co-authors together of an article on Lawfare last week entitled Toward a New Era for Federal and State Oversight of Local Police. They joined me in the Virtual Jungle Studio to discuss the article, The History of the Federal-State Relationship in Law Enforcement, how the feds came to play an oversight role with respect to police departments, the limits of that role inherent in the cooperative relationship that law enforcement agencies engage in for other reasons, the role that the feds might play under new legislation, and the role that state governments may play as well. It's a wide-ranging conversation that takes us to some surprising places, including the history of cars in how the feds came to play a role in prosecuting crime. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 11th, Daniel Richmond and Sarah Sayo on Law Enforcement Federalism. So I want to start with the... Uh, George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which is where you guys start the article. How does this change the federalist balance of America's traditional attitudes toward policing? I think we have to start with the fact that policing is a local matter. Typically, according to Black Letter Doctrine on federalism, the U.S. government is separate from local matters on things like policing. So that's where we have to first start. And the the proposed act changes that in a few ways. Dan, do you want to take it over here? Yeah. And and when we say change, I want to be very mindful of of what are what are surely well-founded criticisms of of this legislation, which is that it's small bore, it's incremental, um, it doesn't solve the larger problems, et cetera. And 
And those are all fair points to make. But, but I think what our piece highlights is that this really is a change. It's making the federal government really take ownership of what could always have been its role as a partial overseer of police departments, not in a, a straightforward hierarchical way, because as, as Sarah points out, that's not the American federal system and it's not our history. But federal funds have always been flowing to local police departments, yet they've never been harnessed as as an engine for for reform in the way that the bill starts to do. And the federal collection of information, again, well, well established through history with the federal government really serving as an informational platform to help local police departments solve crimes and, and do do what they will. But now with the National Police Registry, again, incremental, bound to be criticized, but it starts putting the federal government in an information collection mode with regard to policing and, and in particular police abuses. So what does this do? Walk us through you know, exactly how it is a change. You know, what is this registry and why is it significant, even if only incremental? Well, I'll start by saying, even to articulate the changes being made, well, to many listeners seem like not only incremental, but but no-brainers. The idea that police officers can be fired or or leave under very troubling circumstances from one department, and then pick up and go to another department, seems, I hope, to most people to be something that ought not to be tolerated. What the National Registry that is set up by this bill does is make, as a condition of receiving federal funds, the need for police departments to really step up and to report these officers. And even the process of reporting these officers and there being a national registry doesn't guarantee anything with regard to the hiring of these police officers necessarily. Compliance will always be spotty in any national system, but it starts the process. It really starts turning the battleship of putting the federal government in a position to gather this information and to make local departments accountable, more accountable for the officers they hire. That was one piece of the reforms that we talked about in our piece. The other uh, piece of the act that we mentioned is encouraging state attorneys general to bring pattern and practice lawsuits in federal court, and even uh, providing federal grants to support those types of lawsuits. So that's another way that the federal government is encouraging oversight of local policing, uh, not by the federal government um, directly this time, but, but by encouraging state attorneys general to do that work. Sarah's making a really important point that so much of what the federal government is capable of doing and, and really should be asked to do is only in part going to some sort of direct oversight. So much of what the federal government could do is empower and hold states responsible for doing more within their own jurisdictions. Um, This is something that historically has happened in other policy spaces and really has not happened until recently. And states are starting to step up on their own, but this bill is, is pushing states or at least enabling states to do a lot more. Let's talk about the history. The federal government's traditional role in local criminal policing is very near zero. And in this article, you guys trace how that began to change and the road that we didn't go down in that regard. And so walk us through that a bit. Funny that you use uh, the metaphor of the road that they didn't go down through because the automobile plays such a big part in in this history and how it's changed local policing. 
So like we started off with, policing was a local matter from the very beginning of U.S. history. But as American society became uh, more mobile, uh, first with the railroad and then with the automobile, uh, local police departments realized that to do their work to attract fugitives, to find out whether people have been committing crimes elsewhere and traveling to a different jurisdiction to flee the authorities, they needed to rely on each other to share information about crime and criminals. This became a huge problem with the mass production of cars. And so they tried to um, get together themselves to build a network of sharing information. And that's actually how the IACP, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, which is today still a, uh, a big lobbying and um, advocacy organization for law enforcement. That's how they got their start in the late 19th century as, as a way to share information among big police departments. They realized that uh, their own networks were insufficient to meet the task because uh, this was sharing information and building a database uh, based on voluntary efforts was not going to be enough. And so they asked the federal government to step in and help them. And this is this was the starting point of law enforcement officials realizing that the problem of crime in a federal federalist system of government in a large country where mobility was a given uh, required more coordinated efforts and they looked to the federal government to help them. And just to build on Sarah's point, what I found fascinating, it might be be old hat for historians, but what I found fascinating is is the role that white supremacy played in the growth of a federal role in law enforcement. And that sounds a little odd in the sense that a lot of the resistance to federal authority, particularly in the South, in the latter part of the 19th century and early part of the 20th, or even later part of the 20th, came from the fear that that feds would be dispatched to interfere with, with local customs, including Jim Crow, lynching, and other norms that were being protected by Southern legislators. So, so localism was really an, an important guarantor of white supremacy, but in an interesting development, white supremacy became a vehicle for the extension of federal power, not with respect to anti-lynching norms. There was no chance or little chance for anti-lynching legislation to pass. But if you look at prohibition, the Mann Act, or as it was called then, the White Slavery Act, and other federal extensions of authority, they were driven, at least in part, by concern about African-American criminal conduct that extended beyond the control of a locality. And rhetoric about white supremacy became important for, for growing the federal enforcement bureaucracy, as did commercial interests. I mean, one of the things we also found is it's not just an interest in, in protecting white supremacy that that grows federal power. It's an, a desire to help insurers of cars. And in addition to developing an information platform at the behest of locals, the feds ended up, or at least the FBI ended up spending, you know, about half its caseload doing car theft cases that pretty much were for the benefit of, of local enforcers and sometimes ended up even being prosecuted in county courts. So there is a fascinating, you know, history always um, offers multi-causal explanations for why things um, happened the way they did. And Dan just provided one uh, fascinating aspect of uh, what drove the federal government to get involved in law enforcement. So that was one uh, factor. Uh, the mass production of cars was another factor. And all of that, I think, it's another distinct but overlapping issue uh, is mobility. Um, so a lot of the uh, new federal crimes that were enacted during the early 20th century uh, were criminalizing crimes that were already criminalized at the local level. But what they, the, the federal aspect was the transportation um, 
interstate transportation. So the Mann Act regulated uh, morals, but uh, the, the hook for federal legislation was interstate transportation. Theft is a local crime, but the federal hook for the Dyer Act was interstate transportation. Prohibition um, had been um, criminalized at the local level uh, in the 19th century, but what was different about national prohibition was, uh, again, the reality that people could get around state and local prohibition laws because they were able to transport liquor um, across state lines. And so a lot of these federal laws that um, were enacted during this early period was because of the growing mobility of Americans um, and crime. And so a, a lot of this history has to do with race, it has to do with mobility, it has to do with material developments like the car. And so we, we get to a point in the early 20th century where the federal government, they don't want to get involved in law enforcement. When police chiefs ask them to form a database of criminal information, Congress actually says no. But when um, insurance lobbyists say, we, we need this law because uh, we need a law criminalizing auto theft across state lines because, because it's a huge problem, that's when Congress starts getting involved. Um, and in an interesting way, even though Congress doesn't build an informational platform, when asked directly, it ends up happening through the enforcement of these federal criminal laws. Let's talk about the car, because when most people think about federalism in policing, the white supremacy angle is kind of intuitive to it. The car is less so. Talk to us about the role of the car in the history that uh, starts with policing being entirely a local matter and ends, at least for now, in the George Floyd justice and policing federalization. So a lot of this joint research that uh, Dan and I did started from my research into how cars transformed policing. And I looked strictly at how it changed local policing. And to kind of really evaluate the law enforcement claim in, at the early 20th century that they needed to modernize and professionalize and to hire more police officers because they were proactive crime fighters, I, I looked at what they were actually doing day to day. And I realized that much of what, when they were talking about crime, the sensational accounts were about uh, catching murderers and uh, bank robbers. But day to day, what they were really doing, most of the crimes that they were um, dealing with were auto theft crimes. And auto theft crimes didn't really require police officers to have uh, be armed with weapons and um, equipped with patrol cars. A lot of that auto theft work, um, investigating auto theft required paperwork, uh, checking uh, license registrations and things like that. That's things that, that could be done mostly in an office and just checking car repair shops and parking lots. And so... Dan looked at that and said, there's got to be a federalism story to this. Um, and, and when we looked into it, uh, uh, we realized that auto theft was also a huge part of the caseload of the uh, FBI, um, called the Bureau back then, um, before 1934. So when we looked at this, we looked into why the Federal Bureau um, got so involved in auto theft cases. And we had discovered this really interesting uh, history of local officials, local law enforcement, requiring help um, in investigating auto theft cases because um, cars could be stolen in one city or town or state um, and then be found in another jurisdiction where they had no authority to go over there and uh, bring the, the thief in uh, to prosecute under state, um, in state court. So they had these jurisdictional constraints. They had financial constraints. Um, extradition was costly and uh, a, a hassle. And so after the insurance lobby groups persuaded Congress to pass the Dyer Act, local um, police officers, local police departments, as well as the insurance companies then started to look to the Bureau to help them uh, prosecute these, investigate and prosecute these cases. And so what the Bureau did was to... Um, Basically, um, we call we use the metaphor of packaging uh, because they would just bring together all the evidence scattered throughout uh, the country. Uh, they, they would find the car in one state and uh, ask uh, the 
origin state where the, where the car was stolen from, do you want to prosecute this? We can bring gather all the evidence to you under federal just jurisdiction granted by the you know federal law, the Dyer Act, and they could gather all of this evidence and bring it to uh, the state that wanted to prosecute it, or if they didn't, they could prosecute it under federal law. And so the bureau played this really um, kind of coordinating role. So it, in an interesting way, the federal law didn't just give them a mandate to enforce their laws or investigate it. It also gave them a, a, an opportunity to help local departments investigate cases that should have traditionally been under their jurisdiction. And and to build on, on or to continue the story that Sarah just beautifully told, what you see in these car case, car theft cases is the beginnings and development of an interesting information economy between the feds and the locals, one that really still resonates in the relationship that that the federal government has with local police departments. Because, you know, the Bureau was always small. It continues to be small, given its remit and its concerns. It's heavily reliant on local police departments And it needs to win their trust and win their local information. And and it gets it over time by doing cases that are primarily redounding to the benefit of the locals. Local crimes are being solved. Yes, there's this added benefit that congressional funders looking to be impressed by statistics will see a lot of car recoveries and cases prosecuted. But the Bureau becomes so much so dependent as as it needed to be on on local departments that it really had a an important incentive to to stay on side with them particularly when from time to time when making the the big cases that won headlines going after Dellinger going after other famous bad guys in in the 30s and beyond the bureau would step on local toes and it needed to make up for that and over time, you have the development of a relationship where the Bureau is just not that keen to step on the toes of local police departments. That helps explain, doesn't completely, there are other factors at work, the, the reluctance to investigate police abuses that certainly was hardwired into the federal government until the 1939, but even after the Roosevelt administration started to push the feds to do something with regard to local police, they were not fully embracing of that project. And and what we see now, I'd like to think, is the overcoming of that reluctance to investigate local police departments on the part of the Bureau and other federal enforcement actors. But it doesn't come naturally to them, and we need to work on that. At the end of the day, from a police accountability perspective, is the federalism, the sort of cooperative federalism that you're describing, better or worse than a kind of national police force? In the national police force model, which is the model that most countries have at some level, you have no obvious entity to investigate abuses within the national police force. But here, you have a theoretical answer to that question. If there are police abuses in Department X, the feds, you know, have civil rights laws that they can use as jurisdiction to come in and investigate it. But the cooperative nature of the relationships that you're describing actually make that pretty hard. And so I guess the question is, is federalism a net plus or a net minus or a net neutral from the point of view of police accountability? I think from the perspective of accountability in a world where where there are no safe spaces, one cannot trust in the zeal and commitment of the feds, the states, the locals, when it comes to looking to police abuses and and protecting the rights of those who are 
being policed and being concerned about the effects of policing on communities. So if you start from the idea that there are no safe spaces, I think one embraces a world of accountability where as many players as possible have an interest and a responsibility in perhaps stepping on one another's toes, perhaps getting into spats that play out in the media, thus liberating public discourse about policing. The more activity from the more players, in my mind, the better. So in that sense, the federal government will, for the reasons you just described, at least historically, not be as keen as exercising an oversight role when it comes to local police departments. But they can, they should be held accountable for for playing more of a role. And and in particular, states have escaped, I think, not exactly scot-free, but relatively scot-free from from what I would like to think is their responsibility to look to policing within their jurisdiction. The kind of the relationship that developed between local police departments and the feds, as, as our piece suggests and as our article really highlights, kind of cut out the states and left them not as, as an address that one goes to when one seeks police reform. And it was even worse than that. Not only were they not being held accountable for driving oversight of police within their jurisdiction, because they weren't a place of political focus, police unions got to do quite a lot of work in state legislatures that put even a greater damper on holding local police accountable. So I think we had the worst of both worlds with the states being partial actors, but in a negative sense. And I'd like to think that with a lot of the focus of reform efforts in the wake of of George Floyd's death and a lot of the effort that the feds are starting to do in putting, in holding the state's feet to the fire, or at least liberating the states to do something, will make them a third player in this area. And and they won't all play well. They won't all do the right thing. Some of the state efforts right now are actually, you know, retrogressive. They're pushing back at reform efforts that are coming out of local jurisdictions. So, so this isn't to embrace uh, the grand world where every where all three actors are acting well. America's a messy place, but but I think we need to embrace the messiness as as an avenue for reform, not because it sounds great, but because that's kind of the best we can do. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, 
that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Can I add a historical response to Ben's fascinating question? Um, August Vollmer is someone who uh, people are getting to know more and more these days. He's the father, considered widely considered the father of modern policing um, in the United States. He was the police chief of the Berkeley Police Department from, well, he started off as a marshal before they uh, established their police department. He started off as a marshal in 1905. And I believe a few years after that, they uh, established the police department. He became the first police chief and retired in 1932, I believe. But he had exerted influence throughout the country, even internationally. He would be invited to consult law enforcement um, in other countries. And he's widely considered, like I said, as the father of modern policing. And he wrote um, in the 1920s, starting the 1920s, that we should have, America should have centralized police like uh, they do in Europe. And he argued for that from the perspective of wanting to um, reform police departments to make them uh, not reform in the sense that we talk about reforming police departments today. He wanted to clean out police departments, to professionalize them, to standardize training and standardize qualifications to become a police officer. And he thought that that kind of modernizing reform could be best done through uh, centralizing all operations under uh, 
the federal government, I think, was his preference, but starting with the states. And I think his motivation to centralize everything comes from the uh, the same uh, difficulty that we have right now when we're talking about police reforms to address police abuses, which is it's really hard to reform law enforcement given the reality that there's hundreds of thousands of local departments um, all having their own policies and setting their own practices and um, policies. It's much, much easier to enact reform uh, when uh, there's one organization. And so if, if I were to answer your question from the perspective of history through the mouthpiece of um, August Fulmer, your question was with respect to at least reforming if I remember correctly, your your question was with respect to reforming law enforcement, is a centralized model better? I think it's definitely easier to um, get reforms done, um, and which was the same reason why Vollmer wanted to centralize uh, law enforcement in this country. Just to add, I mean, Sarah was, was, was obviously exaggerating when she said hundreds of thousands of police departments, but but it's pretty amazing that there are, you know, over 12,000 police, local police departments in the United States. And to be sure, most police officers are not employed by those small departments. But there are a lot of small departments. More than two-thirds of, of local police departments were serving populations of less than 10,000. So there are all these little departments who not only have have existed for some time, but but are celebrated for their responsiveness to local concerns. And, and there's there's obviously going to be some some truth to that. But their existence has been in so many ways promoted by by what the feds do to them, what, what the feds do for them when necessary. How do you mean that? Well, I mean, if you're a, local, a small police department, there are certain things that you can get from the feds. And I'm not, not even talking about funding. I'm talking about you'll be able to use the federal information platform to, to get information from departments around the country. You'll be able to, in serious crimes, send things off to the FBI lab. I don't think really small departments get a, a regular parade of, of their people going to the FBI National Academy, but but that's an available place for, for police officers to go from, from any department. And this isn't exactly criticism of, of a world in which the federal government has played a role in in maintaining the existence of, of local police departments, but it's a potential criticism because you certainly can see how a non-judgmental federal government, and it really has been non-judgmental when it comes to the quality of policing for the most part, will enable these departments to continue even under circumstances where all sorts of local pathologies can develop, where insufficient training may be caused by the lack of a tax base, where the lack of a tax base may lead, um, as we saw in Ferguson, a police department to, to levy on, on the poor in order to fund its own operations. And the states have stood by until recently for that to happen, as have the feds. So, so a world in which a department of any sort can be given sustaining help by outside players is not necessarily a world that we ought to be comfortable with. And I think over time, it would be very useful to see even greater consolidation of, of local police departments. A, it's not exactly a trend, but it's something people have talked about for a while. But it's quite hard to do because local policing is thought to be a right of, of any township. Yeah, so... What's the right answer to this question? I know this is a hard, like a ridiculously uh, ambitious question to ask a historian and a uh, law professor, or in, in your cases, two people who are both historians in different ways and law professors. But it seems to me that there should be a platonic right answer to the question of what should the federal relationship with local law enforcement be on the accountability side. And I think we're all, as a society, pretty comfortable with the idea 
you know, that a local law enforcement agency, when it's got a really big case, can rely on certain federal resources. On the other hand, you know, if you said the words every time there's an officer involved shooting, that would trigger a federal investigation, which would be of a similar variety, I think, to that degree of, on the accountability side, a similar relationship between as as exists on the informational side, people would look at you like your head had, like was on funny. And so my question is, you know, without regard to what's politically possible or what Congress would do or what would be constitutional, in your all's view, what's the right role for the federal government to play on the police accountability side? I always find it ironic to speak about optimality when you're talking about criminal law or criminal enforcement, which which takes as its starting point a very suboptimal world. But I think it's a it's a really fair question. Even if we can't get exactly what we want, there ought to be some some position we're navigating to and some thought given to what that position looks like. So I don't think, since as I've said before, my starting point is we'll never get it perfect and we should embrace a degree of messiness where institutions step on one another and and political discourse and political power is exercised in the wake of of institutional interactions. Right, but but I just just to clarify, I'm agreeing with you that that's probably the best that we can hope for is to create a kind of separation of powers model. Uh, of kind of clash of institution versus institution. But I'm saying, is that what you would design in the abstract if we didn't have 200 years of history? Is that your vision of the good? Or is that merely your vision of what's the best we can do? And if there's some other vision of the platonic good, what does it look like? My position is somewhere in the middle in the sense that one of the pieces we're weaving out is is local politics. And and local politics is if a jurisdiction or people in a community don't hold official feet to the fire, none of this works, either at the federal level or at the state level. So one of the things I would hope for is the empowerment of of local politics but but when it comes to how that gets empowered i do think there will always be a role for the federal government to come in where there are real failures in policing whether it comes to corruption that involves local police or constitutional abuses that implicate the local police or even not necessarily constitutional abuses but but matters of deep concern from a federal policy perspective that implicate the local police. I, I don't think we ever want to underestimate the value of the Civil Rights Division and, and those who work for it and the role they can play in holding local police departments accountable. And perhaps there will be criminal cases. There'll never be as many criminal cases as, as some think ought to be brought but there will be some criminal cases. There will be structural reform cases. But at a certain point, we just have to recognize that the feds don't have the troops. They don't have the lawyers. They don't have the agents to do the kind of fine-grained oversight that really needs to be done for any police department. And that's where the states come in. So I think there will be a role for the feds, but there needs to be a lot more role for the states. And that could be bureaucratized. You know, you could have oversight authorities within the state, something that never really has developed in most states, where, where people are charged with keeping a close eye on how policing is done in various localities, not with an eye to solving crimes there, but in a way that's to some extent embraced by the George Floyd legislation, looking to make sure that police departments are certified, making sure that they have civilian accountability measures. The feds have have limited troops. The states 
could at least have more, and perhaps they should be given federal funds to do that. They could be investigating more more shootings, police-involved shootings at the local level. That need not be a federal operation. Sometimes it would be appropriate, but but at least the option of state investigation, as occurs in, in New York and, and some other states already, is something that we really should embrace. So that we're not putting all our eggs in one basket when it comes to oversight, but we are very much recognizing that that the feds will always have a critical role to play and should be encouraged to do that. I want to come back to the question of the role of the states in a moment. But before I do, Sarah, do you have thoughts on what the ideal relationship would look like? I agree with Dan here. Um, the only thing that I would add is, you know, to, to remember why policing, not just as a matter of history, but as a matter of practical reality, why a lot of it has necessarily has to be local in terms of information about uh, criminal activity uh, circulates locally. The emphasis on um, community policing today kind of harks back at the reasons why localized policing is a good idea. But localized policing is also subject to a lot of abuse. And we see, we see that throughout history, um, especially in uh, Jim Crow South, uh, where the need for a national standard was pretty clear. And so I, I, I'm uh, with Dan here that more layers of, um, of oversight, both state and federal, um, uh, would be uh, the ideal solution or arrangement. So I want to talk about the state level. Because it seems to me that a lot of our discussion of state level stuff right now is being conditioned by a few states, particularly Minnesota, where you have a problem local jurisdiction and an energetic state AG who, you know, is a potential oversight vector for that problem jurisdiction. But I wonder if those cases are actually going to prove to be the exception in the long run. And the much more typical case is going to look something like Texas or Georgia, where the most police-friendly entities operate at the state level. That is to say, there's a lot of conservative white voters statewide who elect quite police-friendly statewide actors, particularly AGs and governors. And you have these relatively reform-oriented or, or at least open to discussion of it jurisdictions with many, many, many more minorities than exist at the state level. So you have places like Fulton County in Georgia or Harris County in Texas. And the force that the state is going to exercise over them is actually in the direction of not reforming, right? Not doing things. And so I guess my question is, how promising do you think the states are as reform and accountability vehicles vis-a-vis local jurisdictions? And how often is it going to be that state government is actually the restraint on those things? I think you're, you're highlighting the sad fact that, as I said before, there are no safe spaces. Under the Trump administration, the federal government stepped back from so much of what it did before and what it now appears ready to do when it comes to bringing structural reform cases, pattern practice cases. But even there, in so many of those pattern and practice cases, if you look closely, you see that they're settled by liberal or, or progressive city officials who embrace the federal government's entry into the local realm as a way to further a progressive agenda. So the idea that any of this happens in a jurisdiction where the politics are really aligned against police reform, whether local, federal, or state, it is not going to happen. Or at least I don't know 
the tools to make it happen. I think the best we can do is, is as you quite rightly point out, recognize that that in over history, states have not played much of a role, and to the extent they have, they have played a role that has retarded police oversight or diminished accountability, but they still have the potential to play that role. And I know I sound like an awful ameliorist embracing the status quo, and I certainly don't want it to seem that way, but there are just a limited number of players. And, and, you know, some people would say what I'm really doing in a quiet way is calling for the overthrow of the, the United States. And that's not true. <laughs> um, are you sure about that, Dan? <laughs> I, I, you know, there, are, there are a lot of people who, you know, think you're the, the secret director of the deep state coup. Oh, quite right. <laughs> um, but I embrace our institutions and the possibilities they hold, even as I recognize that the roles they actually play can be retrogressive in exactly the way that you've suggested. I don't have the realistic imagination to to put two weird words together, to, to think of alternatives besides pushing jurisdictions to do what they can do and to hold them accountable for failing to do that. And it seems to me you're arguing something else, which is creating vectors for federal involvement if it's the feds who are reform-minded for state involvement, where it's the states that are reform-minded for, you know, political action of a non-legal variety through, you know, information, you know, if it's local police who were reform-minded, they would have wandering officer information so they could not hire the Derek Chauvins, you know, creating the possibility of action at whatever level of government it happens to have the political will to do it. Precisely. The only thing I would add here is the continuing importance of grassroots activism that ultimately is going to make a difference um, in recalcitrant jurisdictions. It's made a difference uh, recently. Um, so we start our lawfare opinion with the, the, the new act that uh, the Senate is considering right now. Um, and then we also outline a lot of things that the different uh, states have been doing, all prompted by uh, the protest movements that started last year. And what's really interesting and exciting about all of this is that the protest movement has actually gotten several state governments and the federal government to consider structural changes that go against almost 100 years worth of history. All hope is not lost, I don't think. Um, I think that what's, what's important is just citizen activism and keeping the issue alive. And just a final point off, off Sarah's call for sustained citizen involvement. I don't know about Sarah, but many of my students ask me, are, are we in the middle of, of a moment where, where, where things will really change or the beginning of, of serious change when it comes to policing in America? And I really worry about the idea of, of a moment being looked for. This is going to be a sustained campaign and not by, by groups, by legislators, by local departments, by city officials, to to make things different from the way they were. And they were that way for quite some time. We're not going to turn on a dime, and it's going to take sustained interest on people who have the right kind of patience, not patience that, that accepts injustice, but patience that recognizes the need for effort to continue notwithstanding setbacks. I have one more question, and then we can leave it on that note. Do we know what the metrics of success of that look like? Is it the, is it the number of police-involved shootings or, or deaths? Is it related to the number of officers who were charged or the presence of police uh, accountability boards? How do you know if this non-moment, but this sustained campaign is working? 
I think that's a fantastic question. To put it in, in a, a slightly limited sense, one of the, the challenges that has dogged police reform over time is that we have metrics for so many things in law enforcement. And as, as you often hear, what you expect, you inspect. In other words, or what you inspect, you should expect, you hear it various ways. But the idea that we have metrics for stops, we have metrics for all kinds of things to ensure that police are active. What do we look to to ensure that police are doing the right kind of activity or the right kind of inactivity, stepping back when they should not be doing anything? And that's bound to be a challenge. And we do end up looking so hard at qualitative measures. I don't think that that is, that is a problem necessarily, as long as we're not trying to isolate a metric and run with it. I, I like where you were going, Dan. Um, I, where I heard you going was that it's not just one metric that we need. Um, and so the way that I've been thinking about your question, Ben, is as a historian, 20, 30 years from now, what kinds of statistics or metrics would I be looking for to see if there were meaningful changes? And I think what Dan is getting at, it's not just one metric that uh, can tell us, uh, are we headed towards the right path or not? But uh, 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 we need several metrics. We need metrics about um, how many local departments have incorporated national standards uh, for policing. Um, we need metrics on um, the number of pattern and practice cases brought by state AGs and uh, the federal DOJ. We, I think we'll still be looking at the number of you know, stops and frisks, uh, the number of complaints and how they were resolved. Uh, it's just it's a, kind of a multitude of, of statistics to look at kind of to measure the qualitative changes and see whether uh, this has been working or not. And we should become more educated consumers of the statistics we are able to get. Every time there is a police-involved shooting or a police-involved killing, that is something that is problematic. Now, I'm being vague because sometimes it will be necessary in a, in a country that is full of gun-touting citizens for a police officer to defend them herself or to defend others. But every shooting is something that needs to be stared down and recognized as problematic. Counting them up is not the end, but it should be the beginning for a focus on how we can look to de-escalation, how we can look to the way police officers respond and maybe even look to the extent to which citizens have to be armed. But, but that's, a, I suppose, a different issue. After I published my book on the history of policing cars and talking to uh, various advocacy groups about reforming traffic stops, which is the site of a lot of these police shootings, and they asked me these questions, is it if they are investigative stops effective? Are these types of stops effective? And I tell them, you know, we make conclusions based on the little data that we have. We have data from, you know, Florida is one state where we have good data. But, you know, we don't have good data to, to know, uh, you know, what, what sorts of things we can be doing right now. And a part of a lot of these police reforms should be data <laughs> keeping standards and regulations. Um, it's not a sexy part of police reform, but I do think uh, more data and better data can help us a lot, not just with assessing whether we're doing better in reforming the police, but also um, an understanding what more could be done. We're going to leave it there. Sarah Sayo, Dan Richmond, thank you both for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. This has been a, a pleasure to talk to you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, and this episode, it's produced as well in cooperation with the Columbia Law School. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast, so get on it, share us on all the socials, leave a rating or review where you found us, buy our merch at thelawfarestore.com. The Lawfare Podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer this episode is Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. 
And as always, thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.